calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. On today's episode, we tackle two critical questions related to retirement. Who is responsible for providing retirement income? The government or the individual? And what are the features of a good government pension scheme? Once again, it's my colleague Neil Govier over in Hong Kong who's in the host seat. He put those questions to Maria Wilson in a conversation about the 2020 CFA Institute Mercer co-branded Global Pension Index publication, which will be released this month. Maria is a CFA charter holder who has spent three decades in the investment industry and is currently vice chair of the CFA Institute Board of Governors. The Global Pension Index is a fascinating publication that looks at 39 different government pension schemes and ranks them according to certain criteria. Neil and Maria discuss what features make a good scheme, the right balance of features, and the more philosophical question around who is responsible for providing pension income. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Maria, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for having me. Well, over the next 15, 20 minutes, uh, we'll be chatting about pensions uh, and really sort of the subject matter is the co-branded Mercer Global Pension Index, um, which I think we're co-branding for the first year, but I think it's been running for about 11 years in total. So before we dive into some of the more complex issues about pensions, could you just give a short background as to what the, the GPI, the Global Pension Index is? Sure, Neil, I'd love to give you that history. Um, the Global Pension Index really grew from a recognised need that although most of what we do in investment management uh, and in, in the investing world is, is measured, it's managed, it's benchmarked, we have indexes for just about everything. I feel sometimes as though we are measured within an inch of our lives. Um, but despite that, uh, and the fact that most of investment management or a significant part of that is about retirement and people's financial security in retirement, um, it was acknowledged way back in 2009 that there was a gap and that we really had no way of comparing um, different systems and that what we needed to, to have was some kind of a, a global benchmark for retirement income systems. And so in response to that, uh, the, the Melbourne Mercer Global Pinch Pension Index was, uh, was put together. The Melbourne part of that um, was, the, was in recognition of the strong support of the government of Victoria. Uh, and the Mercer part of that title reflects the fact that the index uses the expertise of Mercer analysts globally in terms of gathering the data and providing the, the, the content 
and the information. And a special, um, a special call out to Dr. David Knox, who really was the visionary that, um, that, that pulled this together and worked out um, a way through. You can imagine it's quite challenging to compare different systems. Um, each system is a function of its own history, its own society, the demographics, the political systems uh, in each of the countries. Um, and so in some senses, and given the great variety in different retirement income schemes that we have, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges and bananas in, in, in many, many senses. So it was a real, I think, challenge that, um, that David Knox uh, took on to, um, to find a way that we can actually come up with a sensible way to provide um, some benchmarking of the different retirement income schemes. Well, I, I, so sorry, I, sorry, Maria, I was just going to sort of make a big plug for it and say, uh, you know, everybody should actually have a look at this because you said it's apples, oranges and bananas, and I know they do rank them. Uh, but, but sorry, I interrupted you. I was going to ask whether you think there is one common feature um, which makes uh, a pension scheme that much better than the other. But uh, carry on with what you were saying and remember that question in the back of your mind. Sure, I will. I just actually wanted to just give you a couple of other points of history. Um, so this, the, the index started in 2009 and it started then uh, with just, let me check the numbers. Um, it started with just 11 countries and it now actually covers, or in 2019, um, it covered 37 countries covering 63% of the world's population. So we have done, I think, a great job at, um, at expanding the, the coverage of the index. But very importantly, and just to talk for a moment to the involvement of the CFA Institute, um, the Victorian government decided to step back after quite a long period of support. And it was such a natural fit with the sorts of, with the work and the challenges um, that we face in the investment management world. So I am really very excited that the CFA Institute um, agreed to take over the, the role of, of, of sponsor um, and advisor um, in, the, in, in the production um, of this index. Um, so it's a, I think it's a particularly exciting time. It's going to create some great um, opportunities for engagement for CFA Institute, but also societies locally, because it does have quite a high profile um, and regulators and policymakers really want to hear about what the index is saying about their system. Well, it's such an important thing to be associated with. So uh, I think it's great that the CFA Institute is involved in this. Uh, okay, Maria, I'm, I'm going to test your memory now. Can you remember that question I asked you about uh, whether there is one particular aspect or property of a scheme that makes it that much better? Sure. So I think I'd actually like to, to answer that question by splitting that into, like, there are two kind of key frameworks. There's the um, there is the like the structure of a good of a good system or or a system, um, and then there then there are the characteristics. What actually makes it good or bad? And I think it's fairly well acknowledged and recognised that what makes a good retirement income system um, are three at least three pillars to that. So it's not just about having a government pension or, a, you know, or, a, or private savings. A good retirement income system has at least three pillars. So it has a public pension fund that is government funded. 
there's usually a, an element of compulsory private saving, and then there's an element of voluntary private saving as well. So that, that was actually um, defined by the World Bank um, back in 2009. They've since kind of refined that and says you, ha you have to have a, like a five pillar system. The OECD talks about a three tiered approach. I think it doesn't really matter, you know, which way, how, how you cut that. But I think the key point is that there are a number of different pillars, not just a single pillar, that create a good structure um, for a retirement system. And then we can talk about, I think, the characteristics of a good system. And this really goes to the heart of the construction of the index. And the way that, that we gather the data and analyse the data, it's really based around three key features. Um, the first one is the adequacy of the system. Is it, is it an adequate level of, of income or is this system going to provide an adequate level of income in retirement? And in the construction of the index, that's worth about 40%. The second uh, kind of feature is the, or the characteristic really, um, is the sustainability of that retirement income system. Is it going to be sustainable into the future? And then the third characteristic um, is the integrity of that system. So that goes to the, you know, to the regulation, the governance, the transparency of the system. Is it, you know, is there, I guess you, in, in some senses, there's a, a, an implied promise that if you do these things now, that this is what's going to happen in your retirement. So what is the integrity? Is that, is that implied promise? Is that going to live up to, its, um, to the expectation? Does the index talk about responsibility? So uh, originally I'm from the UK and there's always lots of talk in the UK about people not providing enough for their pensions. Although I think the UK scheme doesn't come out too badly within the index. So where does the responsibility lie? Is it really the fact that the government's responsibility to make sure that when you retire, you, you're, you, know, you have a pension or does it come back to personal responsibility? And does it, good scheme differ between the two? Or does it just say, look, we're going to do something, but we encourage you, the individual, uh, to make your own commitment to this? How's that split work regarding whose responsibility is it? Neil, that could be a deeply philosophical <laughs> and political question. Um, and I'm going to choose a middle path, which is probably um, sensible. I think it is a responsibility of both. I don't think that you can say it is solely a, a, a government responsibility. I think there is a, the responsibility of a government to provide a safety net. Um, but at the same time, I think it is also the responsibility of, of the individual um, to, to, to make a, a contribution um, to the best of, of their ability and when, when they can. I think it, it's impossible really to separate the two. Um, you know, we know that you know, behavioural economics will tell us that, you know, we don't, um, we don't value um, the, the dollar down the road um, as much as, as we should. And so, therefore, I think a good system, and once again, going back to what's a good feature, a good feature will have, um, I think, a tax-favoured environment that does provide encouragement for an individual to provide for their own retirement. I think that's an important feature, but you can't kind of disentangle that between government responsibility and individual responsibility. I really genuinely think it's both. 
So I'm going to push this philosophical boundary a little bit harder at the moment. So as, as you said, people consume today don't really worry about their retirement and the dollar value later on. So what would score a better mark in the index, if you can comment on this? A scheme where the government mandates that individuals must put X percent of their salary into a scheme, or one which simply encourages individuals to do it through maybe tax relief on contributions. Which one of those would be a better scheme, if you can comment? The first. The first scheme where there is a mandated requirement for private savings will be will, will score, I mean, all else being equal, of course, because we have, you know, I'm not sure how many different kind of, there's, there's the three key indexes, you know, adequacy, sustainability, integrity, and then, but then sitting beneath that, there are a multitude of kind of different um, questions and subtexts as well. Um, so things like, um, what's the contribution rate? Um, what's the, um, the, the, the access age, so the retirement age or the pension age, that's another, another factor. What's the, you know, what is the taxation um, arrangement? How transparent, I mean, there's just so many, like there are each of, kind of there are each, sitting each, under each of those um, characteristics, there are a range of different questions, but it's, it, 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 I'm quite confident that if you kind of equalise all of those and then you were to say, is it mandated or can it just be voluntary, a mandated system will rate more highly. Right, it's interesting, but it strikes me it's so political as well. Uh, again, just touching on my UK experience, it used to be that uh, your retirement pot, when you retired, you had to buy an annuity or a certain, you know, the largest chunk of the savings had to go into an annuity. And if that was today, you know, the amount you'd get with interest rates would be nothing compared with what you could have got maybe 10 years ago. So the government trying to get favour with the public said, hey, you've got this lump sum, go and buy a yacht with it if you want to. <laughs> and of course, we're back to, wow, I can buy a yacht now, but hey, tomorrow I might be broke. And so many of the hard choices like mandating contributions seems to fall in the end of the day on the political sword. They just don't want to, it's like a tax in a way even though it's a good tax, politicians just don't want to go there. Um, is, is that a problem, political will to improve pension schemes? Oh, it's absolutely. It, it, I mean, it's, it, it is highly politicised. It's, you know, I think it's probably politicised in, in every country that's considered. But, you know, to get back to your question uh, or, or the example that you used, you know, the, the, the notion of taking the money as a lump sum um, or requiring your pension to be taken as an income stream, that is one of the features um, that actually is taken into account um, in the calculations that sit behind the scores in the index. Um, it's very important. Um, but so what, would, so what was your question again? No, I, I was just wondering about how politics can get in the way of maybe a government putting into place a better pension scheme because a better pension scheme probably mandates more, more contributions or something like that. And sometimes politicians don't want to go there uh, and take choice away from the individual. 
That, well, that's right. And I think that there is an, an understanding uh, about, you know, what is a what is responsible policy, but what is, you know, on the other hand, what is populist policy? Responsible policy will, will require um, mandating, it will involve some element of tax incentive to encourage saving. A populist policy will say, ah, no, it's okay, you know, we'll look after you, you know, with a, you know, when you retire, with a pension, and I think um, you know that's a, a quite the, the the populist approach is quite a dangerous one. It, um, it 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 obviously tends to wax and wane in terms of of political cycles as well. Um, so you know, I guess our our aim is to put in place or or encourage governments to put good policies in place um, at the start of their term and then hold the line when the temptation um, is there to adopt more, more populist um, policies that allow you know, things like early release or, um, or home deposits is, is the latest one that's happening here. You know, use your, you know, obviously a house is a, an important um, um, part of your well-being in retirement. Uh, and so that's kind of a debate that, um, that bubbles along. Um, every now and again, that people should have access to their pension savings um, in order to um, buy a home. Or a nice investment property. Or a nice investment property. Well, actually, and it's quite interesting, in Australia we have an early release scheme um, in response to the COVID situation, and the analysis showed Interestingly, that the largest, um, the, the, the purpose that people were accessing early release was debt retirement, which is pretty responsible. Uh, then there was gambling. Um, there have been a lot of kitchen renovations and, um, and anecdotally, a lot of people have upgraded their boats. <laughs> no, I, I knew was coming to it somewhere. <laughs> um, just, just on detail again, uh, I'm interested, you know, we're talking about balances really, about what's best in the government influence over personal choice. If there was a scheme which promised less, but by promising less, the scheme was more robust and would definitely deliver, although, as I said, it would deliver less, would that be a better scheme than one which was less robust and, um, I don't know, so the maintenance was more difficult, but promised more, so that you'd be better off, but with a probability that the scheme could collapse, although I don't suppose governments would let them collapse. How, how does that balance work? That's an impossible question, Neil, um, well, but the way well, I'll answer well. that um, is to tell you that um, just in terms of the weights in the global pension index, that adequacy, so, you know, how much is there, has a 40% weight. So it is very important that there is enough. Um, and integrity, which is you know, not an exact match to the um, to the scenario that you presented me with, but is, is some kind of a match. The integrity of the system um, is has a weighting. Let me check. Um, I think it's about twenty five. Um, is twenty five percent. So just so just to take that again. So the um, the adequacy has a weight of forty percent. So that's is there going to be enough? And then the, is it going to be there? Actually, can you promise me that? We'll, we'll, I'll describe that as the integrity that has a weight of 25%. So both are obviously very important, um, but the adequacy, that level of income that you receive in retirement um, has a higher weight. So uh, another detailed question, I keep on putting you on the spot, Maria, uh, but you, you, you've got the details there, I think. So on adequacy, 
what's, what is regarded as adequate? So if we take a median salary, what would be regarded as an, you know, an adequate salary from the pension scheme? 40% of median, 20, 25? Uh, I can't answer the question directly, um, but we do talk, the, the index does capture those net replacement rates. I'm not quite sure in terms of the, the line detail what that, um, you know, what's considered to be good. Obviously, the higher the number, the higher the score that a country will receive. But also in that, um, in that adequacy, we talk about um, taxation, what is the extent of, uh, of the, the tax um, benefit or you know, how, how favourable is the tax environment. Um, we talk about vesting. So I'm not sure if, um, if, if, you, if that's a word that's um, commonly used or if that's just Australian jargon that we use, but it really is if you change employers, does your retirement benefit come with you? Like, is it transferable between employers? So that's something. And again, we talk about, as I mentioned, that um, requirement to take, your, um, to take it as an income stream as opposed to a lump sum. Those are all of the the sorts of things that are taken into account when we're talking about adequacy, as well as, you know, what is the, the replacement rate in terms of the, the income that you get in retirement versus you know, your final years of salary. This conversation just makes me go, want to read the index even more. I have actually read it once, but uh, there's so much detail in there, which is so fascinating. I'm going to go back to it. Um, so over the 10 years, you mentioned in your introduction, um, the index has gone from covering 11 uh, pension schemes to, I think you said, 37, uh, and a very impressive 63% of the population. Is there evidence that countries look at this index, look at best practice, and actually change the way they, they organize their you know, government pension schemes? So do governments themselves react to this and improve their schemes as a basis of the index? Well, we do know that countries want to be part of it. So, and the and that expansion of the number of countries that's covered has been in response to governments wanting to, and policymakers wanting to be, you know, to be part of the the action, um, which is obviously a very good thing. Um, I can I can report that um, that there's that policymakers across the world seem to have a very good grasp of the detail. And I know that David Knox has, um, has presented the index in Canada um, and the, the UK. Um, and, the, the, and, in, and in those meetings, there's been you know, great attention to detail from the, from the people that, um, the policymakers that he has met with. I can cite the example of Singapore um, that made a change. Um, now, whether they did it directly because that was a change that was recommended as part of the index, I, you know, I don't know, but they did make the change. And likewise, China um, has also made some changes that were suggested by the index. Others were also make, making those changes. Of course, we'd like to think it was, um, it was because of the index. The index um, for this year um, will be released uh, in a couple of weeks, around the end of um, of October, and we there will be two new countries added. So we'll be going from 37 countries in 2019 to 39 countries. Um, a couple of countries, um, we, it tends to expand by two to three countries per year, um, and yeah, which is I think which is a great thing, and it's it's a great that 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 countries want to be part of that. You know, they know they're not necessarily going to get the the highest 
grade, um, the, some of the Scandinavian countries set quite a high bar, um, and Australia also ranks 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 very well. Um, but the fact that they want to be a part of 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 the index, I think, um, is great, and it, it really I think opens us up to achieve the objective of of dialogue with policymakers and regulators to improve systems, to improve the financial security of um, of people, which is a great conversation to be having. Well, I think the evidence is is, is in the numbers. So as you say, you get another two. Uh, for the 2020 uh, publication, which will be out, as you said, towards the end of October. Um, no, no government's going to step forward and be put under the microscope unless they see value in that, and therefore, as you say, can see best practice um, and adopt things in some of the changes that you've said, uh, like Singapore, for example, in China. That's great. Um, so um, I think I'll call it a day with our conversation there, Marie. I think it's been a fascinating conversation, and. Uh, Although pensions are things that many people don't want to talk about until they get too close to it, uh, just seeing the different ways that pensions can be set up and, you know, the things that we touched on, political will, uh, personal government uh, relationship, responsibility. I think it's fascinating. So thanks ever so much, Maria. Um, and I say to everybody else who's listening, find that publication when it comes out and look at it and uh, it'll flesh out some of the conversation points that we've had today. So Maria, thank you. Can, so I, can I just make one, one last advertisement? Yes, um, along those lines, Neil. Um, every year we have a special section uh, that deals with a particular topic or area of interest around retirement income systems. And I guess unsurprisingly this year, that is the impact of COVID. Uh, on retirement income systems. So I think that's going to make for fascinating reading. So I would very much encourage people to, um, to, to look at the report when it comes out in late October. Right, I, I thought we were gonna have a conversation without mentioning COVID. So uh, well done, <laughs> Maria, you squeezed it in there. So it's very topical, of course. And uh, thank you for that final plug. So anyway, take care, uh, stay safe, keep your family safe, and uh, we'll meet again in person, I hope. Bye then. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.